you need to need to realize that there are going to be winners and are going to be losers. And if you want to be a winner, you, you have to want to play. There's a soccer analogy that works the best internationally, which is we need to find a way to win. We don't need to play not to lose. So we're not going to put 10 players in front of the goalie and hope that we you know end up with a zero zero tie. You need to take calculated risk in, in short term, play offense, be aggressive. We stand today. The Business Method the business with method. a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now... Let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey, gals and pals, listen up real quick because we have something exciting to share with you. First, for you high-performing entrepreneurs out there, we've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 episodes that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to eight minutes long. These high-performance episodes are being published on Monday and Friday each week and will be labeled as HP number 1234567891010 and so on. Those episodes are live now and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content when you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered to you as soon as they are live. The next thing I wanted to share with you is about our private mastermind community for established entrepreneurs. If you have an established business that has good momentum and wanted to be involved in a higher level mastermind community that is curated specifically for entrepreneurs that are moving at the same speed as you with similar challenges, revenue, team size, and business niche, then we've got a group for you. Our private mastermind groups are facilitated by myself, yours truly, and my good friend Adam Anderson. Adam is a seasoned entrepreneur who's been involved in 20 plus startups over 20 years and recently had a multi-million dollar exit. I keep the members on track with their goals, productivity, and optimization, and Adam brings the vast business knowledge to the groups. Our purpose with this private community is to help you reach your business goals faster so you can remove yourself from your company and focus on bigger and better things. You can learn more about that private community and masterminds at thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. That's thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. And now let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. 
Lou Kimball is on the podcast today, and Lou has one of the most impressive corporate executive careers that I've ever come across. Lou is the former executive vice president and CEO of the famous sports shoe company, Foot Locker. Not only has he served as executive vice president and CEO of Foot Locker International, he's also served as executive vice president and CEO of Foot Locker Asia and Pacific, Foot Locker Europe, vice president of the real estate division of Foot Locker Europe, vice president of operations, Foot Locker Kids Florida USA, Director of European Sporting Goods Association and Director of Australian Sporting Goods Association. Lou started his career with Foot Locker just two years after the company was founded in 1974 and has been with the company for over 40 years. Foot Locker now operates in 28 countries around the world and is actually a successor company to the F.W. Woolworth Company that was established in 1879. Foot Locker now has over 3,300 mall-based stores globally. One of the reasons I wanted to have Lou on the show is because he thinks like an entrepreneur. Lou put Foot Locker on an entrepreneurial strategy for growth, acting like a startup in a mature buying environment with high expectations. Lou has a strong record of proven results on four continents. His leadership ability has allowed him to create and track record of turning around underperforming businesses and delivering long-term growth. And he's on the podcast today. Lou, how are you doing, my friend? Very good, Chris. Yeah, thanks for that very, uh, uh, you know, uh, w- wonderful introduction there from that standpoint. So I have to, I'll have to, you know, have to bring you along with me more often. From that <laughs> I can be your official uh, intro man yeah, for yeah, any speaking gigs yeah. you have, right? <laughs> there you go. So yeah. Yeah. Um, so well, before we start off, we've got a fun question from from one member of the audience, and I've got to throw it out. He's lived in Asia quite a bit, uh, and he wanted to ask you. Um, is why is it so hard to find a shoe over the size of 10 in Asia? <laughs> that's a good, that's a good, yeah. Well, again, I, I think that the reality is you're, you know, from a product distribution standpoint, you cater your size runs towards the size of the, what you think is the core sizes of the marketplace. But I could tell him, depending on where he is in Asia, um, the consumer base is there is readily expanding, you know, no different than the United States. You have most of your major markets, whether you're talking Singapore or Hong Kong or Seoul, uh, or Tokyo are becoming melting pots, just like the United States. So you're going to, I think you're going to see more and more of a push out of uh, on upper ends of the sizes and lower end. So even on the apparel side, he's right. You, you would have a hard time finding a, you know, if you're a big guy looking for a double XOR somewhere in Asia as well too, from that standpoint. But again, I think that's changing yeah. uh, uh, from that standpoint. And a lot of that by China as well. So. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I was in Thailand a couple of years back and I ordered a pizza from Pizza Hut and it was a medium and it came as, you know, you remember those, you know, those small personal pan pieces with four <laughs> yeah. pieces. And they were like, that's, that's a, that's a, a me- that's a medium here in Thailand. And I was like, this is a personal pan. This is four pizza pieces. I paid $20 for it. I was furious, but uh, they were like, no, welcome to Thailand. And, and so uh, I get it. Yeah. But um, you have one of the most incredible careers as a corporate executive at a corporate executive level that I've ever seen. Um, and it'd probably be fair to say that you would it be fair to say that you know Foot Locker better than almost anyone alive? Uh, at this stage, yes, probably. There yeah. aren't too many of us that go back to those early days when uh, when you know when the company was was uh, first founded from that standpoint. So, I mean, I actually made my original switch over uh, in the uh, the early '80s because you're right, Foot Locker started in 1974 in Puente Hills. I had started in '76, but actually with Kinney Shoes, mm-hmm. which was part of our you know one of the other divisions within the FW Woolworth chain, but. Uh, I made the move over early against the advice of all my mentors within the Kinney company who said, 
hey, that athletic thing's just not going to work. Why are you leaving? <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, you you had the foresight. Um, what, what was your first job with Foot Locker? I actually I actually started on the sales floor. So yeah. I started as a uh, management trainee. So from that standpoint, because then the if you wanted to come up through the field organization, that's where you started. And interestingly, I had done my even back in those days my research, and the FW Woolworths Company had a history of. Uh, promoting from the store team or the operations team in the business. So if you wanted to eventually become a division president and even uh, the CEO of Woolworth for multiple years, uh, even going before we went to the outside for the first one, always came up to the sales team. So you kind of went from stores, district manager, regional vice president, VP level within the operations. And then that was like the number two job back then. That that's changed now, as most companies have now look across the entire executive pool. So whether you're in, you know, a merchant role, a marketing role, an IT role, whatever it is. So, I mean, now we, we obviously look for everything. But back in those days, if you really wanted, if you had an aspiration to eventually be the guy in the big chair or the woman in the big chair, mm-hmm. you needed to start in the field team. So in the store team. There's so few people these days that, that stay with one company that long, even 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I'm curious, what was it about Foot Locker that you, you enjoyed so much that kept you there? Yeah, I, I think the, the opportunity I had was because of all the different roles I played. I mean, I, I never would have probably stayed that long. I mean, I think like most, com- most people rather, if you're, if you're successful, there's always somebody knocking on the door or, you know, send me an email or whatever, but it, it's the variety of roles. I mean, you between the store team, uh, the moves internationally were, were a huge game changer in my career, uh, taking on the real estate role for a period of time and then, uh, you know, actually leading the division. So being the managing director down under in Australia and then the president for Locker Europe. So, uh, you know, if it wasn't for that, that constant change of, of, of opportunities, then, yeah, I, I think you would have looked to go somewhere else. I mean, you could have taken a, if you said, Hey, I'm interested in real estate or I'm potentially interested in some other part of finance or some other part of business, you, you would have gone somewhere else. But fortunately for me, um, those doors always opened up for me. Yeah. You, you changed so many roles throughout that time period and given it was, you know, 40 years, but, um, was that because you were just interested in different divisions and you thought you could help them grow and, and it, did it excite you to change roles that often? Yeah, it did. But, I, you know, I think and it's interesting because I, you know, I, I have a chance to talk to, you know, sometimes to college audiences or, or to younger executives and, you know, people say, well, what's the what was the biggest uh, influencing event in your life that got you to where you are? And, and by far it was when when uh, we made a decision as a family, because obviously your family makes that decision as well. Um, to go to Europe in the early nineties to physically move to Europe. I mean, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. Uh, none of my family ever lived or worked outside the U S in fact, I don't think most of them even traveled abroad, let alone move. But now Foot Locker happened to purchase the, what became the core of Foot Locker Europe back in 1992. Uh, and they asked a group of us to work to work on an exchange program for a couple of years to try to put the, you know, the Foot Locker values and culture into this new organization. Uh, and after going back and forth for a couple of years, I was offered a role over there as the, uh, the VP of the store team. So the VP of operations, the person in charge of the sales team, again, the number two in our echelon. Uh, and that move changed everything for me because I think you, yeah, I, I think most of us Americans, even if we're the most humble of Americans, we, we kind of believe that the sun rises and sets in the United States and the world, the world rotates a little bit around us. Uh-huh. But you go over there and it's a whole different thing. Uh, I mean, from that standpoint, I mean, you know, uh, I think I, I learned and learned from the people that work for me. I mean, let's be honest, they teach you as much as you teach them. 
I mean, you know, things like um, diversity and inclusion were a big part of growing in Europe long before they became buzzwords uh, in, in the US. I mean, in those, in the, even in the startup days, we were at seven or eight countries in Europe and quickly went to 13. And it's a whole different experience when you're leading teams, not, not only in those days, potentially language challenged, uh, but it's a huge difference. I mean, I mean, let's say the U.S. isn't the same. I mean, if you're, a, you know, if you're based in New York talking to somebody based in Texas, you might have a little bit of a cultural difference. But mm-hmm. when you cross, you know, trying to convince a Frenchman to do what you want him to do versus a German versus a Spaniard versus an Italian and 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 just the just the differences in, in culture and, you know, who's relaxed and, you know, easy going and, yeah, I'll get to it when I can and, you know who potentially marches in the direction you send them until they go off a cliff, unless you go back and make sure that they realize they need to stop occasionally. So, uh-huh. but yeah, to me, that was the biggest change. Cause you, cause it, it, it really re repositioned all my, up until that point, anything I thought was important to be a successful retailer, mm-hmm. it, it really monumentally shifted me. And I think that experience allowed me to really grow within the company and to take on the other higher level international roles that I had an opportunity to do. Can you elaborate more, Lou, on on kind of the leadership skills that you learned and had to apply while being abroad with those different cultures? Because a lot of our listeners, like myself, I, I've lived abroad nine years, a lot of time in Europe, a lot of time in South America, a lot of time in Asia, right? Um, and I'm, But I'm a bootstrapped entrepreneur that can run everything from his laptop. And a lot of our, our listeners are like that. So I think your experience could help them apply um, – that knowledge to their businesses because there are still so many people that even if they are, uh, they, they do have remote businesses working from home, um, they still don't understand that how easy or, or how, cha- how, how some of the skills or how convenient it is to go abroad and, and live a life and, and to operate remotely in different uh, cultures and countries. So maybe if you could uh, talk more on those leadership skills. Yeah, it's interesting, Chris, because back in those days in the '90s, you didn't have Zoom, you didn't right, have uh, right. you didn't have the uh, email appetite that you do today. You had to do a lot of things over the phone. You had to do a lot of things over, uh, you know, a very antiquated system of getting messages to a store for that standpoint, or an executive that's traveling. So, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I think the first, you know, the first thing is, you know, whether you're if you're able to control your own destiny, that's great. But for most of us in life, if we're successful. Uh, we, we need a team around us that we can that we can work with. And we also eventually need the consumer that whoever you're serving from that standpoint, whether the consumer is internal or external. So, uh, I mean, my advice is to be to, to be to be a student of your business all the time and to, and to be humble enough to realize you're going to learn things. So, you know, um, when I got into Europe, the expectation because it was interesting because I replaced another American. So there was an American that went in into that role when we first bought the company. And the theory was he was going to embed the culture, get everything going, you know, teach the Europeans to be, you know, like <laughs> footlocker Americans. Um, okay. But the but the, and, and he was and he had a very successful career. In fact, actually, he was um, one of the guys that probably had a, had a little bit to do with shaping my what became my executive roles, but he was really un- undoubtedly. And he would say himself was a, was a failure for those two years. Cause he just could not get the Europeans on board. And the problem was he was, he, he was so focused on, we do this this way in America. He didn't spend enough time listening, spent probably way too much time talking. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the different cultures have different, you know, different uh, mindsets. So you, and you, if you're, again, if you're a student and you go into the, the store to talk to the store team or into a meeting setting in a 
hotel somewhere with a group of district managers or regional vice presidents, um, or in the office with your uh, the other parts of the business, the other silos that have to support you in the field team. You have to be willing to listen and, and understand um, and then probably take time to what I did anyway, take time to step away from that initial, okay, let me down, let me pull in the information. I, I still know where I want to go, but let me understand where they're at, what they think, what they don't think, and then go back in a short period of time with a, how you smooth the message or how you say it. So for example, in France, yeah, you, you, at those days and probably still today, you really need to convince the, you know, the French people that this is their idea and I'm just helping them make it happen <laughs> uh, versus the versus a, a meeting with the Italians or the Spaniards, which is, Hey, look, you know, I, I the, the fact that you're relaxed, the fact that you're flexible, the fact that you're, you're willing, you're willing to absorb some of the things we ask. That's great. Mm-hmm. We just need to do it a little quicker. You know, the timetable needs to move up a little bit. Uh, and I think because uh, of the willingness to listen first, I think most leaders, then you can earn the respect that you need for when you then ask them to do something or you ask your team to accomplish something, they believe in you. And I think that's, uh, you know, the, to me, that's been one of the, uh, the fortunate things for me is I, I, I've always been able to uh, earn the respect of my team first and then be able to ask them what to do. Um, and the people that are, you know, that know me and there's people that know me for 40 years and know me for five years, whatever, they'll say that, that they've heard me say multiple times. What's important to me is, that I've earned your respect and trust. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily important to me. You like me. I, okay. That would be nice, but it's more important that you, that, that you respect and trust me so that when we make a decision as a, as a division or as a team, uh, that you execute against that, because, uh, you know, th- that's ultimately how you're going to judge if we're successful or not. If we just talk about it forever, then, okay, yeah, it's great. But, uh, um, you need to actually go out and accomplish things. So there was a lot, I mean, I mean, there was, there was a lot of times I came home and, and, you know, would have kicked the dog or thrown stuff around the yard thinking, how many times am I going to talk to these people before they understand or follow through? Uh-huh. Uh, but eventually they do. Uh, and again, and you just have to be willing to, I mean, when I say take time, I don't mean years, you know, so if you're an entrepreneur and it's your own money, I mean, you don't have years to wait to, to get a return on it. Or if you're part of a big company, you don't have years either. So uh, uh, it was funny. Uh, That's the last thing and I'll stop. When, when I got promoted to go to Europe, I was all excited. Okay, I'm taking my wife, my, my first wife and my two sons to Europe. It's going to be a great, great opportunity for us. We got to grow. And, and the job I had before I went there, I was based in Manhattan. So again, I was running the store team in the in the in the uh, boroughs but i was you know my technically dm office was in the woolworth building you now the, the seat of the corporate headquarters uh-huh. so i got called up, i got called up to the chairman's office which was roger farah which was like going to see god in those days so okay fine whoa, whoa. so i went up to see roger and roger said look we're really excited about the fact that you're going to go to europe we really think you're going to make a difference but you need to be clear lou if you don't start making money over there, we're going to shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, dude, that, again, there has to be a timetable to get things done as well. Yeah, it makes sense. We've got a question from one of the listeners here, Lou. Uh, I'd like to know how uh, Lou got good at team building and what I or other leaders could do to get better at this. So maybe just something on, on team building for you with your experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I, th- I think first off is when you build a team, you need to make sure you, you, f- you have a diversity in, in who you're looking at and what roles you expect them to play. You have to be thinking ahead that when the team's assembled, whether it's four people or 15 people, 
how the how that interaction is going to work. So, I mean, sometimes the focus when we look at teams is functional. So, okay, I need a head of HR or I want somebody to run my supply chain. But you also need to look at personalities. Um, and uh, I think the easiest way to describe it is I'll use birds as an example. So um, you want to have some eagles. You want to have some people that can, that can you know, that want to lead and want to go. But you can't have the entire team being eagles because – yeah, that just doesn't work either. Mm-hmm. You know, you need an owl along the way. You need, you need probably need a couple of peacocks that kind of push the edge of the envelope and make you think about things differently. But uh, so I think when, when you want to develop a successful team, you not only need to look at the functions that you're trying to fill, but you also need to look at how the how you can bring in people that bring in a diversity of of uh, skill sets, of of personalities, of different things they look at in life and in whether you're based in the if you're a global company i'll put it that way also where you bring in people from other parts of the world so you don't end up with you know um you know all it's the same mindset from that standpoint and and i would say for every leader standpoint although it sounds like it would be what you want it's exactly you don't think you want if you look around the room and they all look like you and think like you and talk like you you're never going to be successful as a team good point all right we've got another question here lou how do you research and make sure you are engaging with the culturally appropriate marketing? Is there a whole uh, team for it? And how does a small business without research get that info? Yeah, there, there's, you know, if, you're a, if you're a small or medium or large company, the good news today is that there's a lot of social listening uh, that can be done. And it doesn't have to be really expensive. So I would say, you know, look for somebody that does monitoring from that standpoint or can monitor your social media feeds from that end. So, I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, Hey, it's my company. So I want to read every time somebody posts something on Facebook about me, or I want to post on, you know, read every email that comes in. Uh, But I think what you need to do is do some social, you know, have somebody uh, that can aggregate your social listening and then give you back some feedback. Um, You know, again, if you're fortunate enough to be big enough to be able to do it internally, then you could certainly hire, you know, a, junior level, you know, digital asset person that can, that can pull down the content for you. Um, but I think the, the other thing too, is to make sure that the appropriate people in your business or you, if you're the owner actually read some of the comments. Cause I think sometimes, uh, what I've seen in, in some situations, uh, especially in a medium or large company, you know, the, the people in the decision-making know it's happening, but it's almost like, no, I don't really want to just tell me, you know, but sometimes it's, it's a lot different when you have to, from personally doing it myself for years, when you have to actually read that email about where you fell down as a company, because let's be honest, you know, unfortunately, most people write you when they're not happy, then tell you that you've done something right. That's human nature, I think everywhere in the world. So when you have to actually read really read it and think about, wow, did we really not did we really miss the mark by that much type of thing mm-hmm. uh, from that standpoint? And yeah, I think it's, it's really awakening, but there, there are tools out there. Uh, and again, it's not, you know, and again, and if you're a digital, if you have some digital experience yourself, there's some, there's some tools out there too, where we could follow up, I could get you some information, but there's some, there's some digital tools out there where you could almost do to, with yourself and your own Google account and your, or your own Instagram or, or Facebook account, uh, do some aggregate work yourself from that standpoint, uh, you know, so you could see what, where you know what people are talking about you and then what you want what potentially do about it or not so sometimes not doing anything is, is the correct answer for the question right um so you're known to play offense in business and one of the strengths of yours is, is turning around underperforming uh businesses for long-term growth um when you landed in europe and you knew you had to make this thing profitable 
what was the mindset going in and what are like maybe some like metrics you set up for yourself in order to to start the ball moving and then when did you realize that thing thing like where was the tipping point where you realized you you had hit success and things were going to work over there Okay. I think it's, to, I'll answer that two ways. So okay. I'll talk about the first time I went there in 1994. And then actually the second time when I came back from Australia in 2010 was actually probably a more pivotal time for our global organization. But okay. um, the first time I went over, I, I think the, you know, the mindset change, uh, again, as you would expect, you know, the advantage of being in the athletic industry, you, you have a lot of people who are have been involved in sports so and they think whether whether it's soccer whether it's american football whether it's rugby whether they swam or play tennis you you even have people working for you that might have been uh olympic athletes within their uh their country and you know in a sport that's let's say not as prevalent as you know like a basketball player or soccer player is today but you have a lot of people that are that are culturally want to win or have it in their personality hey look i want to win mm. so i think the, the the first thing we you know we established was the fact that hey you know that we want to win um but i but from a sales organization standpoint we want to win on the top line and the bottom line because i it's because it's always easy to, if you're a retailer it's always easy to win on the top line i can i can certainly motivate you today to buy a pair of shoes chris mm-hmm. it may not make me any money on the bottom line but i could certainly you know, so the issue is we need to be able to do both. Um, and then we need to be able to be uh, focused enough to make it happen. So the, the, the end of the first year I was there, we had a tipping point moment. So we're going to have this balancing act between being promotional after Christmas and not being promotional because in Europe, it's a big deal. So boxing day in the UK is an example. And um, because those, the countries even more so back then, but even now are regulated on when you can actually go on sale. It's not like the U S where you could be on sale every day. Mm -hmm. So we had to do this balancing act. We were really on the fine line of, would we make a profit for the first year or not? Uh, and we went back and forth on the dynamics of how much we could drive on the top line and how much it was going to cost us markdown wise so we can then hit the bottom line. Okay. Um, and we we ended up in as an executive group with really a almost a 50 50 split. So you had the, the group around me saying, yes, drive that top line to that extent with that markdown level, we're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And you had the head of planning and the CFO going, oh, no, we're never going to get there. You're going to we're going to lose it from that standpoint. So. The president at the time of Europe believed in my side of the equation. Unfortunately, it worked from that end. Uh, but again, that that was also a tipping point moment because then the organization, the entire organization, office based and field based, realized we can be profitable and we can win. And I, that was a mindset change that went from well, you know, we're yeah, they bought us a couple of years ago. When we ever make money, you know, what's going to happen? Right. Um, when I came back from Europe. Uh, from Australia and I came back to Europe in 2010 for the four years I was gone uh, in Australia, um, the division, the division had barely made any money and the people working in the division because the profits, uh, our bonus plan is linked to a variety of metrics, but you don't basically, if you're not hitting your bottom line number, you're not going to pay out a bonus. So for four years, those people hadn't, hadn't even in, in the bonus. So when I came back, it wasn't, it was a, you could, now, I don't want to. I don't want to underplay how hard we they worked as a team and stuff. But we 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 immediately won in 2010. Mm-hmm. The difference was when we started a plan for 2011. It was like, well, we ha- you know we're doing so well this year. We can't. We clearly can't do that well next year. We we clearly have to slow ourselves down. It's like 
no, that's not how it works team. You know, it, the idea is to build success upon success, not right. to have a successful year to have a mediocre year and mm -hmm. have a successful year. So, uh, and, and again, the, um, the lion's share of the business believed in that, uh, and you do things around it to, you know, to, to promote it, to get them excited internally. I'm talking about now, uh, and from a vendor standpoint too, when you're, uh, that's, that's a nuance of Foot Locker as well too, is you, you don't build your own product. So you need to be, uh, for as much as you do to motivate your team, you need to motivate your suppliers to make sure the product that you want to buy to then drive your top line and bottom line is made available to you. Because uh, interestingly, um, from all my years in retail, the only retail segment in the marketplace that I'm aware of um, that competes for the opportunity to buy product is an athletic footwear and apparel. Good, you know, like if you know, no, no one else I've ever talked to, whether you're as big as Walmart or as little <laughs> as the mom and pop down the road, says, you know, when I went to my supplier and I said I wanted to order a hundred thousand of whatever, that they said, no, I think you only need fifty. Yeah, because that normally doesn't happen, but that happens in the athletic industry. So you need to be as good uh, marketing to your brand partners as you do to your, uh, yeah, to your internal team to get things moving in the right direction. Yeah, that makes sense. When you're referring to your top line and bottom line um, for for what you guys were looking at, Lou, top line sales, bottom line profit, is that it? What you're, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, did you do the same, basically apply those same methods when you went to Asia as well? Yeah, but, but a little different thing. So, uh, you know, we talked a little offline, so from an audience perspective. So the, the difference when we started to go uh, in 2016 and 17, we started to look at the places when I was ahead of international. We started to look at the places in the world where Foot Locker wasn't playing. So mm -hmm. at one point in the 90s, uh, surprisingly, of, of all time frame, we were actually we had some stores opened in Hong Kong and we had a couple stores in Tokyo. We also started to expand in uh Latin America. So we had Mexico and we had a few stores uh, in a few other countries. But in both cases, we pulled out. So in uh, the Mexico case, it was a devaluation of the peso. So we ran as fast as we mm -hmm. could back across the border. Uh, and in Asia, the reality is the numbers that came in from the stores, although the sales numbers were very good, um, you know, against the projections based on what the rent would cost and everything else, we, you know, we pulled out and at the, in those particular days in the middle nineties, it was a very critical time for the Woolworth company on whether we would be around or not to this mm -hmm. day. So we, so we, we pull back. So, but those are the two parts in the world where Foot Locker really doesn't play. And uh, there is a strong part of the athletic industry. So our research was showed us Asia was more aligned to where our consumer is uh, from a price point standpoint and uh, product mix. So we went into Asia, uh, but, there was a real challenge to my team and it almost became apparent from day one. So we're going to Asia as the new guy. So it's not like we show up in town and there's nobody else selling athletic shoes and apparel. We're going to have to, you know, fight for our share of the pie. Right. But because you're a startup, you're literally startup in all stages. You know, we, we didn't have a service center, so we needed to coordinate a 3PL. We didn't have real estate in the marketplace. So we spent, you know, countless days convincing landlords that we were a viable you know, option for a small or a viable potential candidate for a downtown location we want to cook. So although they knew Foot Locker, we weren't there. And then their point of view was many a time was, well, what's the difference between you and the other three guys I already have? Why, well, why do I need another athletic store? Mm -hmm. But internally, the problem was that we were a very successful, mature business by the time we got to 2016. So high single digit profits, the low double digits each year as a, as a global organization. And Oh, you want to have this startup where you're going to lose money for three to five years. Well, 
Yeah, that, unfortunately, you know, that's, but again, we had a business model <laughs> that said, this is how we go. Right. But everywhere along the way, it was, it was constantly a struggle for a lot of my peer group at the, at the senior, uh, the highest senior level table to understand that, Hey, look, you really need to invest. Now there was plenty of people that understood it as well, Yeah. but yeah, you, yeah, you can't, you know, why do you, why do you need that marketing campaign when you open up your first stores in, in Malaysia? Well, because nobody necessarily might not know who we are. Oh no, we're full locker. Everybody knows who we are. No, not so not, maybe not, maybe not as much as you think. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, that was a, it was a very, and it was a very interesting challenge for our, uh, gentleman named Thomas Peterson, who's the GM who runs, uh, uh, Asia for us, uh, as well as the, um, head of our digital team um, that we that we sent down there from that standpoint to do the same thing to cut across uh, the marketplace because our goal when we opened in Asia was to open up multi-channel to go to be able to have a, a, a e-commerce order at the same time we could have a, a, a consumer standing in a store mm -hmm. uh, so David Miller had that you know the same thing and again it's even interesting even in the most forward-thinking uh, people in our <laughs> in our company you know how many times you would have to like you know still go back and pick them up and go okay now remember it's not the same so yes David needs to hire you know to increase his staff by 50%. Well, increasing his staff by 50% means he's going from 10 to 15 people. He's not going from 500 to 750. So, right. you know, from that standpoint, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was, and it was, it was unique, uh, you know, from that standpoint. So, uh, and probably at that stage of my career, I was, uh, the good news was I was a lot more patient than I would have been maybe 20 years before that to have these, the, the, the ongoing discussions with my peer group on the finance side to go, yeah, we're, you're going to lose money for a couple of years, but you're going to make money. And the good news is we were on track. We didn't lose any more money than we thought. Actually, we, we did better. Uh -huh. uh, and they will make money uh, in the time frame we had planned now based on you now have enough stores and have enough uh, digital business to now lift the tide from that standpoint. Right. That makes sense. I, I want to ask you, I know you were the, the VP of real estate um, in Europe for Foot Locker. And uh, what's your, what's Foot Locker's play with, uh, the real estate division? Um, because, um, I'm, I'm fascinated with, you know, McDonald's is, you know, the old adage is, isn't a hamburger company. It's a real estate company because they mm -hmm. own the most, the best real estate on every corner in every country <laughs> and city in the world. Um, is that your, I know, and then I know you guys are in pretty much every mall that I've ever been in, uh, especially in North America for sure. Um, is, do you have a similar play to McDonald's in that respect or, or what's the mindset behind, um, behind real estate with Phil Locker? Uh, well today, today, unfortunately, I think in most cases we're just, we're just the tenant or, or the, the, the lessee from that standpoint, there okay. was a point, there was a point in the war days where the real estate group was a was a profit center. In fact, for, uh, for quite a few years, Woolworth made quite a bit of money by selling, uh, you know, property when it got to the point where they didn't you know see it as a viable alternative anymore mm -hmm. uh we're now we're now we're really the real estate place so the play for us on the real estate side of things but it's interesting because it's a it's a really serious play in north america right now uh, based on uh, even before covid but since covid from that standpoint is is to decide whether you stay in the mall and pay the rent that are that the mall developer wants to uh, uh charge you or can you uh, rotate outside the mall uh, to a freestanding or a strip center location and, and maintain your presence in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. uh, and Foot Locker, we, we, we uh, moved in on that strategy uh, years ago. So actually, in, back in 2015 and 16, we realized we needed to make this pivot in some situations because 
uh, some of the best malls for the athletic industry, which are clearly not the best malls for all forms of, of, of uh, retail, but for the athletic industry are C and D malls, and many of them weren't going to survive. What do you mean by um, the so, C and D uh, malls? Uh, low, higher higher occupancy rates uh, or vacancy rates, excuse me, lower um, okay. you know average volume for the p- typical tenant in the mall. Okay. So like in a, in, a, in a city, let's take, uh, I'll use Houston as an example. So if Houston has 15 malls, there's going to be five really great, unbelievable brass and glass malls. There'll be some in the middle and then there'll be the bottom three or four. Gotcha. Well, the athletic, the athletic industry, because it plays very well to a urban or a, uh, a minority-based consumer, mm-hmm. tends to play really well in the lower end malls because it's closer to where, to where that consumer lives from that standpoint. Gotcha. But it plays well across, don't get me wrong. But so, so this pivot came up. Um, to look at where you know where we needed to stay in North America and where we could actually go outside the mall and continue to serve the consumer, it, whether that was a necessity because the mall was going to go away, but the consumer wasn't going to go away, mm-hmm. or because of you know it helped us more from a profitability standpoint. And the model we can we can always look at is, whereas in the U.S. you're you know we're probably seventy or seventy five percent mall based internationally we're probably only thirty or thirty five percent mall based because the the uh, the international consumer still shops in their downtowns yeah. um, even though the mall exists from that standpoint so uh, and it's the same thing across Asia and Australia and New Zealand as well uh, you have you have malls but you have your downtown or CBD locations um, that are very viable so you have that. You have a success story that says, okay, look, you could come outside the mall and be successful. Your real estate team then needs to figure out where where the pivot should happen and how you can make the pivot happen from that standpoint. And uh, um, and there are some some really good examples in Detroit, in Baltimore, actually in Houston, uh, in L.A., uh, where, where some of the malls that were very, very good to the, the consumer that, that plays in our channel went away. Mm-hmm. Um, the stores in now a strip center or a freestanding location um, – have continued to serve that consumer and we can be community-based from that standpoint and stay there uh, because that consumer is just, you know, yeah, it's, it's not fair to them to say, well, you need now to go 30 minutes on the subway or take two buses to get to the other mall or whatever, when it used, used to be able to, you know, five minutes from where you live, be able to get what you need or take your family you know, from that standpoint, one bus stop from where you live and not across town. So, yeah. So, so it sounds like um, it's given you much more flexibility these days. If a mall does go under, um, that you aren't, you don't own the property. You can, you can just in. But for the like downtown areas, do you guys do you try to buy those those locations or? Are you still leasing, or is it? Does it? Does it's just not your focus? Well, yeah. Right now, I said it's not our focus. We've had had several discussions about it over the course of the last ten years. I'd have to tell you that uh, I would have advocated in in select situations that we actually bought the property, but we we decided not to go back into that from that standpoint. I mean, there's obviously pros and cons mm-hmm. uh, when you when you have the asset on your balance sheet or you don't have the asset on your balance sheet or the the liability, depending on how the assets valued from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are there, the only properties that we really own uh, in most cases uh, 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 that would be in the U.S. or outside U.S. We own several of the office buildings we operate in uh, from our standpoint. We own uh, our service center in, in uh, Johnson City, Kansas. We own our service center in Hyen in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other places, we use 3PLs. Uh, we own a facility in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, which serves as a, a hub for moving uh uh, product in the east part of the United States, but also has a, has a basis for our financial and our IT organization. So yeah, so there's not a lot of retail property. Uh, and in the U.S., I wouldn't see it being. Um, it's not really that 
common. Um, even in the downtown locations, you certainly could find a mom or pop type of home building. You might be able to. Uh, internationally, it is much more prevalent uh, because you have so many more stores that aren't in malls. Mm -hmm. uh, and there have been a couple situations where I, where I actually advocated that we buy the property versus lease it. But, you know, the, um, the internal evaluations that, you know, they felt again, that was more risk than there was reward. So continue to be the, the tenant let someone else uh, go after the property from that standpoint. But there's, you know, there's no doubt that there's that, that, that there is money to be, to be made or, um, you know, to have control of the building is an, is a, is a, uh, is not a bad thing depending on, you know, what the business is and how well you can utilize the property from that standpoint or, or what the other tenants might be. So, uh, you know, internationally or even in the U S in a downtown location, you, you clearly would have retail on the ground floor, or maybe the first floor, but then you'd have offices or apartments above you. So again, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but yeah, yeah. Our real estate team is focused on, you know, managing the relationship between us and the landlord uh, and not necessarily managing the property anymore from that yeah. standpoint. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, another question from our listeners, Lou. I'd like to know more about how Lou organizes all of the data he needs to absorb so he can make the best informed decisions as possible. I've experienced issues with my uh, when I'm working through and with people having a clear understanding of where they are in the process and systems we have built and what we are producing. Okay. Well, uh, there's two sides to that. So there's the the internal amount of data you get, and then externally in today's world where everything moves so fast. So I'll do the external one first. So what I found for myself over time is I, I set up um, Google searches, in particular either brands or um, subject matter um, that pulls down stuff and give, basically puts it in front of me every day. And then I could go in and look at what I need in a, in a consolidated format for that time. Cause otherwise you you could be, you could, you could just spend the entire day looking at your screen and never, <laughs> never get up off the chair. <laughs> yeah. But that, that really helps me. Uh, I also subscribe to a couple, I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's dozens of different, even in the athletic industry, there's dozens of different, you know, whether it's SGI, whether it's uh, a variety of formats that, that dump in information every day or every week. So again, I try to come consolidate down, uh, a group of uh, information that I can really, uh, um, you know, understand what's going on in the marketplace around me uh, from that standpoint, from a business perspective. Uh, some of it, again, would be real estate related, interestingly, because you need to know what's going on in the marketplace. A lot of it's around what the brands are doing that you would you, you would sell in your store for a full locker store. Uh, and some of it's other things within the industry. Um, internally, the, the best way I found to continue to make sure you're engaged and you have that dialogue and you have a, a chance to absorb what's going on is um, is a couple of things for me. So I, I, I believe in touch base meetings with my direct reports on a on a weekly or biweekly basis, depending on you know uh, their area of the business and what's going on. Uh, I also try to make time every week to sit in on meetings within the functional areas of the business as a, as part of the audience. Now, sometimes that's difficult because you drop in the meeting as the, the CEO is, as an example, and it could redirect the entire meeting. Mm -hmm. But when you start to do it on a regular basis, then it doesn't become a surprise. Like, Oh, you know, why is he here type of thing? You know, it's just like, okay, 
it's our turn or it's, you know, he hasn't been here for a while type of thing. And a lot of times when you can jump, even if you can't sit through the whole meeting, so if the meeting scheduled for two hours and you can only block an hour of your schedule, or if it's scheduled for an hour and you can only block 30 minutes, you'd be surprised what you learn and what you pick up along the way. And obviously you pick and choose. Um, you know, the one thing we've, we've always made sure in the divisions that I've been involved with is that we have a pretty robust and accurate corporate calendar. So again, you, I can see when those, where those meetings are and when they're going to take place. So, you know, what building, what uh, what meeting room, or in today's world, what Zoom link that I need mm -hmm. to hit to be able to attend. Um, but I think getting involved in those meetings and hearing things sometimes yourself firsthand, you, you could come back out of it and have a whole different perception uh, when you go back to then talk to your team. And it doesn't have to be a problem here. I think the other thing too is I think we too often run to where the the you know the smoke and fire is. And, and not spend the amount, of, the amount of time on what is right, what is working and how you potentially can accelerate that from that standpoint. So I think you, uh, you know, balance between where, where you go and where you don't go. And, and today, yeah, until the world goes back to whatever the new normal is, because a lot of these meetings are on Zoom, mm -hmm. um, yeah, you could jump in right away. So it's not like, you know, for example, if I'm sitting in, uh, you know, beyond in, in the Netherlands, which is our European headquarters and the meetings happening in New York, what's the timetable? Does it work for me? Can I get there or not? But, you know, uh, and in the, but prior to COVID, you'd be the odd one in. Okay. Can somebody make sure there's video equipment in the room so I can attend <laughs> where now it's like, okay, everybody else is on zoom too. So, okay. I'm just going to, you know, I'll jump into the meeting and you know, see what's going on. But I think you have to, you have to make sure that for as busy as your personal schedule is, whether you're the, you know, the entrepreneur owner of a business or leading a team that you make time to get into the, the different, you know, segments of your business or, or your team and, and participate. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then I think also the challenges that we talked about earlier is can you, when you go in, try to listen more than you do talk. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, I, what do you do to, 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 as an executive for, for so many years, Lou, like you've got to keep a healthy mindset. You've got to keep, uh, keep staying the right state of mind. You've got to keep a healthy body as well to, to keep going for all these years. Um, what are some of your, your regular habits that keeps you on par so you can be an A player? You can be in that, uh, that go getter for, for, for so long over an extended period of time. So again, yeah, that's, this is another one of the things that I learned in that first trip to Europe in the 90s and yeah. then, uh, the other trips internationally, which is I think I think internationally, international business leaders have a much better um, uh, understanding of work-life balance. Now, part of that's because their Fair. vacation time is dramatically more. I mean, you know, <laughs> as, as an American, you typically get hired. You're lucky if you get, you know, two weeks vacation and internationally, you immediately start off with four or five. But t take that to the side. I think, the, think that the, uh, the first thing is, is that you, you – and I really push this with my uh, uh, my direct reports and even the layers below that is you need to take you need to take time and you need to take time away from the business. So mm -hmm. if you're on vacation and you're sending me emails, I'm probably calling you up and asking you to you know put your computer away. You know you, know, you got you have to give yourself a break. If you, otherwise, you, otherwise you you lose the, you lose any type of peripheral vision because you're in a tunnel. You're looking at the same thing day in and day out. You need to take a step away. If you're fortunate enough um, that you have enough vacation time that, that at least one time a year you can take 10 days or two weeks off, that's 
probably the best thing you could ever do. Because I think for most of us, it's by the end of that first week's vacation that you actually start to feel like you're on vacation. Yeah. So you need a you need a few more days to actually rewind from that standpoint. And again, I think I think look, we're, you know, we're all reachable all the time, especially if you're a, you you own the business or you're in a, you're in a really senior leadership role. And what I try to do is I try to establish with my team uh, when I was taking a break that look, if it's an emergency and you really need me, call me. Mm-hmm. Don't count on me reading the emails every day. Don't don't wait for me to, to you know, you know, to respond. If you really need me, uh, call me. Otherwise, when I have a chance, so, you know, I'm on vacation and it's raining and we're stuck in the hotel for a week or something, I might log on and knock off a few emails. Uh, but I think first of all is, is that when you do get a chance uh, and make sure you do force yourself to have a chance every year, you know, disconnect. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, I think you need to have um, have commitments for your time outside of work. That's the way I would put it. So I think too often, you know, you say, "Well, I'm going to go to the gym," but that's not really a commitment. So mm-hmm. if you're if you're fortunate enough to have children, then you can make yourself have a commitment. So my commitment to my my first two sons and my my youngest one now is that I'll be involved, which is easy for me. I'll be involved in sports. So I coach one of their teams, mm-hmm. which means I have to have time at night, a couple of times a week. I have to make time on the weekend to show up to, to coach the games. Um, other people will do other things to be, you know, maybe they maybe your, your, you know, your child's involved in girl scouts or boy scouts and you can link in there, or they have some other kind of hobby, whatever it might be. It could be, um, you know, it could be programming. It could be a variety of different things where you can you can take the same class as they are, but that disconnect also uh, from work because you're forced to also helps you clear your your mind as well too from that standpoint. So uh, I never, I mean, I, I exercise on a regular basis, but that's never been the release for me. Although I know for some of my best friends, it is that you know hour in the morning in the gym or you know running to prep to get ready for a half marathon or something is their you know their release from that standpoint. Um, where I've used other things, but I, but I think you have to, for most of us, I think that are very, and especially if it was my own money, if I was an entrepreneur running a business, then yeah, if you don't force yourself to have a, have an obligation, I think that's the best word obligation outside of your work. You're not going to, you're not going to disconnect. And if you don't disconnect, you have the real risk of, uh, as I said earlier, is that you're, you're, you're only seeing things in a tunnel. You're, you don't yeah. have enough time to realize what you're missing and how much what you're missing is affecting you. That and, and another thing I've noticed is, is a person's self-confidence that never takes time off. Self-confidence is so wrapped up into their business or their job that if something changes or if the business is down or up, then, then, then they're depressed or they're happy just based on the business. Where if you have outside ha- hobbies or, or time outside of whatever your profession is, then you can balance that because you may have a bad day at work, but you go play softball with your friends or go coach Little League or something. It's really enjoyable. So you can kind of maintain it. it makes sense. What? Yeah, you're right, Chris. From an ego standpoint, if if you're the you know the leader of a big team or the owner of a company, and and, and people spend a lot of time telling you, you know, you're great or whatever, and you have to filter that. But you you coach a bunch of seven or eight year olds. Boy, they really tell you that you're not, they, they, you don't know everything every day. Unfiltered changes, feedback. <laughs> changes your entire perception of how to motivate somebody and what you can, uh, yeah, the things you learn from working with kids or from people outside your job from that standpoint. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, how about how about your sleep schedule, Lou? What, what type of sleep schedule do you do? Uh, yeah, I, I, I generally try to get six or seven hours a night. I don't really need, uh, I mean, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm an early, I'm one of those people that starts on the early side of the business, you know, the day from that standpoint. So when I was working full time, um, both in Vian and or commuting into New York, uh, back in New York, I would generally get up between, um, you know, five and five thirty and try to be in the office a little bit after seven mm-hmm. in the morning. I always looked at that time. I tried, I would always try to get in the office half an hour to an hour before the rest of the population comes in. Cause I always felt I needed that time to prep for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a sleep standpoint, yeah, I generally, yeah, I generally try to get six or seven hours and I generally can even do it when we travel. I'm fortunate with, with all the traveling I've done for all these years. I, I make the time change, you know, fairly quickly from that standpoint. So it doesn't, uh, it doesn't kill me for that. And I can, the other big advantage, if you travel as far as to Asia from the U S or from Asia, from Europe is I can sleep on the plane. So I think nice. that's one with, without the help of a drug, I could, I can actually <laughs> you know, get some, get some sleep on the plane, which, which allows you to land and then, uh, you know, go out. Cause again, when you, you know, the, and for all of us to travel internationally, I'm sure you have, you know, everyone has plenty of experiences. When you land, the people you're coming to see don't expect to say, well, okay, now he's going to take a whole day to get used to it. Yeah. They're, they're pretty much ready to go. Exactly. So you, yeah. you, you need to hit the ground going, okay, I'm here. The only reason I'm here is to help you. So I need to be, ready to work to help you from that standpoint. So, yeah. Um, what do you think entrepreneurs, uh, are missing when it comes to like underperforming businesses? Like say somebody's, you know, got their company and, or an asset within their company and it's underperforming. What would you say, uh, what would you recommend them, uh, the first few initial steps to take in order to turn things around? Um, yeah, it's always, you know, again, when it's your own thing, your own business, especially, or, or it could be, I could even say from my experience, well, it's my team. I think sometimes we're, we have to, we have to almost, yeah, move to the side and and realize, okay, look, I'm not evaluating the person. It's not, it's not an extension of me if it's not successful. So from that standpoint and really be able to evaluate it. Uh, I, what I always do is I go back to what the original, strategy was and what the original purpose was. So, uh, you know, we, we thought we, you know, this is what we said we wanted to accomplish. This is the time frame we wanted to do it. This was the assets, you know, both whether it's personnel or funding we want to put in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we're not where we needed to be, then uh, is, is the is the problem us or is the problem that we were just off from a strategic standpoint? So I think, uh, and then you pull people in and, and brief them the same way. Look, it's, this is not about what anybody did wrong. This is not about anything. It's, uh, you know, it's a, it's not, it's not about the person. It's about what we thought we would do and how we can get it done or not. And then evaluate. And then I think, um, the hardest part then is to, is to potentially realize, especially I'll say for myself personally, Mm -hmm. uh, is to potentially realize that, Hey, I I can't fix this. It's not going to work. And it's not, it's not, it's not viable. And then the question is, is it, is it better, uh, operating with someone else or, or is it a business business that we thought we could make successful? We can't, and we, and we need to exit. And, uh, and to me, that was always a personal problem. So, um, uh, to be able to admit defeat, but you, you eventually, you need to have a lot less, you know, on the negative side and a lot more things that you've won at, but sometimes you have to admit that it's not the right play. And if it was, uh, and I think it's the same for a, whether you're a big company or you're, or it's an individual owner is you, you need to be honest with yourself and make those decisions before the hole gets deeper and deeper from that standpoint. Because yeah. the, the reality is in, in some cases you could have, you could exit before it's that dramatically affected to your overall business. So I don't, I don't really like to use some of the, 
current buzzwords in, in the, in the uh, IT world, but in this one's case, I would agree you need to realize you need to fail fast and then move on. Yeah. Uh, before before you jeopardize the rest of the business around you on something that you uh, that you did that was wrong, and, and and it's happened for us. I mean, I was really a big advocate of of us buying when I ran Full Locker Europe and internationally about us buying a, a two retail chains in Germany called Runners Point and Sidestep. Uh, one one would offer us a, a a vehicle in a performance category that we don't play at in Europe. Uh, you know, performance running, not just casual footwear. And sidestep was a very was a very unique model because it was more more female based and male based, and again that's a against Foot Locker as well too. Uh, and I was convinced they were going to work. Well, we we eventually had a had a shutdown Runners Point because it, it just didn't work out. And the problem there was, and I can say this honestly, mm-hmm. is that uh, our our two most important brands in the athletic world, Nike and Adidas, changed their strategy about the product they were making available to Runners Point. Um, and for and for you know basically trying to make Runners Point work for about a year without the right product to serve those consumers, we eventually had to say, look, it doesn't matter. We, we could do we could spend the next five years at this. And the reality is, we're not going to change Nike or Adidas change in their distribution model. There's nothing that tells us they're going to reverse. So mm-hmm. we have to you know admit that uh, this is not going to work and yeah. uh, and make those moves from that standpoint. If you could, and maybe um, that kind of piggies back into this, but if you could define how you see leadership in a few sentences, Lou, what would that definition be? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough with a few sentences, but uh, 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 let me try it this way. I'll, I'll talk about uh, uh, there's three there's three things I've that I felt that you know were. Um, uh, instrumental in, in my ability to be a leader and, and the, the things that I hope um, those other leaders that I've uh, mentored uh, has taken away and used. And actually there are three. So the first, the first one is, and you kind of mentioned earlier is I, I believe you have to play offense. You have to be aggressive. You have to find ways to win. When I say aggressive, I don't mean you trample somebody uh, or you, 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 you trash talk your competition, but you, but you need to need to realize that, um, there are going to be winners and are going to be losers. And if you want to be a winner, you, you have to want to play. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a, there's a soccer analogy that works the best internationally, which is we need to find a way to win. We don't need to play not to lose. So we're not going to put, you know, 10 players in front of the goalie and hope that we, you know, end up with a zero, zero tie. Uh-huh. You need to take calculated risks, but in, in short term, play offense, be aggressive. Um, the second one is excellence and execution. I think too often, we think about execution in a lot of different ways in business, but execution means that, that we we have a pride in what we do and how we do it. So whether you're the the owner of a company, the CEO, uh, or the receptionist that comes in, across the business, there has to be a, a, a pride in what you're doing. And there has to be a core value that says, look, what we do, doing it with as much excellence as we can is important. Yeah. Uh, and I think it establishes a culture, especially in a, in a, in a uh, as an example, in a, a business or an industry that has to rely on external parties to, um, to help you be successful. Because if you can demonstrate excellence and execution, the people that you rely on or the businesses you, you uh, work back and forth with say, well, okay, well, if they do it, then they could certainly ask us to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then the last thing is because everything, again, to my my standpoint is, uh, you know, you're only as successful as the people that you bring in or the people you were able to keep and surround yourself with is that um, you treat each other with dignity and respect, you know, whether that's your internal uh, uh, employees and fellow colleagues or your external partners you're doing business with, no matter whether you're a contractor building a store who's not doing it well or a big brand like Nike, whatever, you know that dignity and respect, I think, goes a long way. So that when you do have to have a negative conversation, it, it, you know, it carries a lot of value. It's not just the, you know, the, the only time you ever talk to me is when you yell at me type of thing. So from that standpoint, <laughs> so, you know, yeah, you, you want to make sure you have a good balance. And, 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 and fortunately for me, those are the three things that, uh, you know, th- that I've said from, from day one. So whether I needed a translator to put it in another language or, or uh, saying it in English from that standpoint that, uh, um, that I think are important. And again, I, I realize today's today's employees a lot different. The marketplace is a lot different today than it was 40 years ago when I started. But I, you know, there's there are some things that don't that don't uh, age out from that standpoint. What what are you doing nowadays, Lou? Are you still involved with the company, or are you you full on retirement? Uh, what's life look like? Uh, well, I've, I've had an opportunity to do qu- quite a bit of uh, you know. Uh, consulting, but the consult in the consulting world today, it's a lot different. It's a you know one or two hour call because nobody's uh, you know nobody's in their office or nobody's flying around the world to it. So, and I've had some really interesting opportunities there to to, to not not talk just about the athletic industry or Foot Locker or Nike, but to talk about leadership skills, uh, to talk about business in Europe, uh, a lot about Asia because you have a lot of uh, uh, American and European country companies rather trying to make it in Asia and and, and you know. Unfortunately, a lot of them don't make it from that standpoint because of uh, not being able to adjust. So that, that's really interesting. Um, I took, um, before I retired, I took a non-political appointment by the uh, mayor of the Westfield, New Jersey I live in. So Westfield is a, has a pretty vibrant downtown area and they have what's called a downtown Westfield Corporation or a, uh, a central business district that actually manages the downtown, has a very su- substantial budget of uh, seven figures. Um, so I'm the vice chair of that group. So that, that keeps me pretty busy. Uh, and then my uh, forced uh, step to the side situation is I coach my son's travel soccer team and I'm on, I'm on the board there. Um, the, my full locker situation, I haven't even been gone a year in August, but I have a couple offers to go on to uh, paying jobs as upon the board of directors. I need to clear the August standpoint. I'm probably going to show up on one of the boards, one of our, uh, one of the athletic suppliers globally. Uh, and then another, uh, uh, retail organization in the U.S. It's not not athletic uh, base, but you know, still sits on that fringe of youth fashion. I'll say that from that standpoint. So yeah, yeah got to clear it from that standpoint. So, what do you think you would have done if Foot Locker wasn't in your life? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, I, I think that I think I probably could have gone either one of two ways. I think I would have tried to find a way uh, to work with kids, whether that would have been through uh, coaching or teaching. Uh-huh. Uh, Cause I've always enjoyed that part of it. And it's interesting, you know, as you get to be in your fifties and sixties, technically your 20 and 30 year old startups are like your kids from that standpoint, but okay, it's a little different, <laughs> a little different, a little different relationship, but I would have wanted done something there uh, or, and if, or, and, or if I stayed in business, uh, I probably would have looked for another uh, similar uh, model to what Foot Locker has from that standpoint. So I would have probably looked at something in, in the management area that I could grow. It may not have been a retail, uh-huh. uh, but I think that the most important thing to me when I was first starting out is that, you know, I, I didn't necessarily think I would get to the level I was at, but I clearly, uh, 
from a personality standpoint, had aspirations that it's not about the job I'm taking. There needs to be, I see myself at some point somewhere else within the organization from that standpoint. So, uh, uh, and whether that's, you know, vertical or diagonally from where I start, you know, I, I, I would have looked at it from that end. So, but uh, I think the first play would have been towards something to, to affect youth from that standpoint. And I think that's, it's interesting because the core consumer for the athletic industry is 16 to 24 years old. So you're mm-hmm. in a very pivotal point of their lives. And that's a lot of your employees too, let's be honest, because retail is very dominated by part-time uh, people working in high school or college. And then you have the percentage of full, full-time jobs. Uh, and then my, I've always been involved in, in sports. So my two older sons are now in their thirties. I, you know, I was involved with uh, their teams or their uh, clubs, uh, that would have been uh, well soccer basketball baseball from that standpoint same thing in you know internationally so i've coached uh youth teams in both soccer and in baseball because netherlands has a really strong baseball program um mm-hmm. well, at the time as well too absolutely i think we're going to wrap up there lou any final parting words of wisdom you'd like to share for our listeners <laughs> uh yeah i i think the only i guess i would part with this be you know be be smart enough to realize there is still plenty you can learn every day, no matter how much of an expert you are in your company or your business. Uh, And, and as you, as you then deploy that idea, search for what you can where and when and how you can continue to learn and grow. So whether that's, whether that's written materials, whether that's conferences you can attend, uh, whether that's listening to your consumer or your employees on a regular basis, but, but really be smart enough to realize that, that no matter how, how uh, high up on the intelligence level you are in your business, there's still a lot for you to learn. Uh, and, uh, you know, unfortunately I've seen more, most companies that aren't successful be more about ego than, than is about strategy or execution. Absolutely. Very, very true. Lou, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. Your career is fascinating to me. Um, so thank you so much for taking your time and, and sharing with us today. Thank you. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for the invitation and, uh, and the opportunity to, uh, to speak with you today. And listeners, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.